This is before the Tisch School of the Arts at NYU, before they even had a film school, but they did teach film classes. And I signed up for that beginning film production, loved it, and I was like Al Pacino, Godfather 2, when he's in Sicily and he sees a girl and falls in love, and they, and nothing. One of his compadres says, he's been hit by the lightning bolt. Well, when I took that film production class, I was hit by the lightning bolt, the lightning bolt of filmmaking. And I had so much fun. I knew, I got to tell you, honestly, I swear to God, praise, praise the Lord. I knew at that moment, this is what I want to do with my life. And ever since, uh, I've never lost sight of that. Hello, and welcome to Spill Your Guts. I'm your host, Kevin Lane. Our guest today has one of the most diverse bodies of work of any director we've ever had on the show. He has worked in multiple genres throughout his decades-long career and proven himself to be a filmmaker who kills in any genre space that he is working in. Having come up in the business alongside industry friends such as Martin Scorsese and Sidney Pollack, he is part of cinema history as one of the filmmakers creating distinct and memorable work with style that is unquestionably his own. However, it is a film regarded as one of the best adaptations of Stephen King's most beloved books that has made him an icon of horror. In this episode, we will be joined by filmmaker Louis Teague. Often regarded by his peers and fans alike as underrated, Louis first made a name for himself in the genre with the cult classic Alligator. Better than anyone thought an alligator living in the sewers movie had any right to be, and featuring a bravera performance by lead actor Robert Forster, Alligator has gone on to become a favorite of fans around the world. Lewis's 1983 adaptation of Stephen King's Cujo is considered by many, including King himself, as one of the ultimate King adaptations. With unbearably taut direction, nerve-frying cinematography by legendary cinematographer Jan de Bon, and a career-best performance by genre royalty D. Wallace, Cujo remains untouched in the canon of Stephen King movies. With a great dry sense of humor and an uncanny style for storytelling, Lewis shared with me his youth as a bit of a troublemaker before winding up in the military, finding his way in the heyday of Hollywood tours, his ups and downs in show business, and his enjoyment in teaching later in life. So, let's strap into a Ford Pinto and prepare to have our adrenal glands blown with Lewis T. Hey, Lewis. Kevin. Good to see you. you. Good to see you. Are you doing well? Pretty good for now. Old guy. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a young at heart thing, right? Isn't that, not how that, that's supposed to be approached? No, you know, I, uh, I'm using a calendar. None of that young at heart shit. I mean, you know, my <laughs> career began, began back during the second world war. Wow. Yeah. That's a while ago. That's yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was, it was fun because when I was sort of, 
looking into your your career and digging into your your background and stuff to prepare to talk with you today i was like oh my goodness you have uh you've done so much cool stuff and interesting stuff and so uh for for sticking with the theme for an old guy you've certainly uh lived it up and done a lot of things <clears throat> i am very lucky i've gotten a lot further than i deserved i think <laughs> Yeah, I, you were you were raised in Brooklyn, right? I was not raised in Brooklyn. I was born in Brooklyn Hospital. My parents lived in Forest Hills at that time. Uh, they were going through a divorce, literally, as I was when I was being born. Uh, my mother proceeded to move around a great deal, mostly uh, on the East Coast, the Northeast Coast, ranging from. Uh, New Hampshire down to Maryland, but I lived all over the place on the East Coast, many, many different domiciles during that period. Is there one that sort of sticks out to you as being sort of the one that felt the most like home at that period in your life? No, we moved so frequently. You know, there wasn't one in particular, but... uh, you know, it, it's interesting because I just uh, am in the process of writing a story, writing a series of memoirs, and I'm just writing a story about a period in 1946 when my family moved down to uh, Bucks County, Pennsylvania, close to Philadelphia, a little town called Plumsteadville, and my stepfather bought a 50-acre farm and it was one of the happiest periods of my life because I was living on a farm. I, it was a very uh, Tom Sawyer kind of existence. Right, uh, yeah. I would take off my shoes when the snow melted and my feet would become so calloused I could walk on glass by midsummer. And I didn't have to put the shoes on till September when I had to go to a little school a one-room schoolhouse about a mile down a dirt road from where I live. And, but I was close to nature. It was a great period. The seasons, that the sounds sun. Great. Yeah, that fields. sounds great. Yeah. Did you like ever like, uh, you know, just jump on a little rafting and head down a creek and just sort of see where it took you? Did a lot of that. Did a lot of exploring. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, we had a, creek running through our property. We had fields. We had um, uh, neighbors who would till the field because my stepfather was trying to go into the organic fertilizer business. He was British. He was uh, Lieutenant Michael Botkin of Her Majesty's Royal Marines, attached as part of the attache, British attache wow. to the War Department. That's before we had a defense department. Yeah. And he met my mother, married her, and decided to stay here after the war. So he went into the fertilizer business, and he bought a farm where he thought he could set up a little factory and start on a very small scale in the barn. And so that's what we were doing there. So did you grow up with your, your mom and your stepfather, like, you, or did you see your dad as well? Well, uh I would see my dad periodically, uh, and my stepfather divorced my mother about 10 years later, so 
Uh, and I was as a juvenile delinquent in New York City. We'd moved to New York City by that time, and I was getting into trouble, kicked out of high school uh, for not being truant, but I'd lost too much time in juvenile hall uh, where I'd served a little time for various juvenile delinquent activities. And that's right. my high school, when I tried to get back, re-enter high school, said, you're almost 17, why don't you quit and join the Army? So I did that. I thought that sounded like a great idea. So at 17, I was in the Army in Germany, having a high old time. Oh, you went to Germany? Yes. What time period it was post-war, it was during the occupation, Okay. So there was no shooting. Uh, it was it was a incredible for a seventeen year old guy to suddenly find himself in Germany with money in his pocket, and uh, <laughs> it was I, I I liked it a lot. It was the best thing I ever did because I was on a wayward path before I got into the army, and in the army I learned a lot of things. I learned that I was capable, I could do things. I became uh, an intelligence specialist or an artillery battery and had a lot of responsibilities and did a good job. And uh, except for two court-martials, uh, I had a very good time in the Army. Court-martials? What was that for? Well, I had this bad habit of stealing cars, which, had, which <laughs> is why I wound up at Juvenile Hall. When I was younger, and I had there was an opportunity in uh, Germany where for me to borrow a car, I thought I was borrowing it. I had no intention of keeping it or selling it, but I was very good mechanically, and I knew how to hotwire it. And but I got caught. Darn! They they said you you need to ask before you borrow a car. They uh, yeah, it was. It was a civilian car, and I came out of a, a Gasthaus. That's a little German bar in a small town in Ulm, Germany, which was, interestingly, uh, Einstein's birthplace. And uh, uh, we had a curfew. I was supposed to be back in bed by midnight, and I was with two friends, three friends, and we couldn't find a taxi and I saw a 1949 Ford sitting across the street. And it never occurred to me to think that a, an American car in Germany at that period was suspicious. So, But I knew how to hotwire it. So I hopped in with my friends and I said, come on, I'll get us back to the base. <laughs> and, uh, you know, after a... a Chase with sirens and lights and everything. I was, it turned out to belong to an MP. And I didn't find this out till I, because what happened is around the time that I was being arrested, I passed out. Needless to say, I'd had a lot to drink that night, or I never would have done something that stupid. But <laughs> I woke up with somebody, I was in jail in the brig, and some guy was trying to kick my ribs in, and it was an MP. And it turned out that I'd stolen his car, and he was very yeah. pissed off. But, yeah. Uh, somehow I survived the army. I, they, they, uh, I was sentenced to six months uh, 
part of the labor, but they suspended the sentence. Uh, there was a financial fine, uh, but I didn't have to serve any jail time. And I got to, I got to, I, I rose back up to the ranks again to sergeant and got out. And like I say, it was the best thing that ever happened to me because I was, I grew up in a very dysfunctional family. I was not a happy camper when I was a kid. I did not learn any social skills and had very low self-esteem, I think. And I began to change that while I was in, in the Army. And it was only after I got out of the Army that the thought occurred to me, uh, well, you know, you, you turned your life around a little bit the last few years in the Army. What are you going to do now? And a friend of mine, actually a guy, this is interesting, a guy named Bob Maurice, who was with me. We stole that car together that wound me up in juvenile hall. And I met with him when I got out of the Army. We met, we met at a bar in Greenwich Village in New York. And he showed up, and I didn't recognize him. Yeah, a few years ago I'm by, but he was no longer the shaggy-haired, leather Fonzie kind of guy that I knew when we were stealing cars. He was wearing tweed with leather patches on the elbows, had a short crew cut, was clean shaven. And I said, Bob, what happened to you? And he said, well, I went back and finished high school and I'm in college now. And he said, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know. And he said, well, have you ever thought about college? And I hadn't. I didn't think I had the background or the academic qualification or anything like that. But we were sitting in Washington Square, Manhattan, downtown in the village, and it was March, and I could, so all the leaves were off the trees and I could see through the park. You know New York, by any chance? Do you know New York City at all? Like I'm in Toronto, so I, it's not that far. So I've, you know, we've, I've driven out there a few times, and the last time I was there well, was about five years ago. Well, I looked across Greenwich, or Washington Square, and I could see the red brick buildings on the east side of the square, and I knew that they belonged to NYU. So right. after Bob got on a subway to head back uptown, I wandered over to NYU, and I kind of poked around, and I saw a sign that said admissions office, and I went in there, and some guy said, how can I help you? And I said, I don't know. How do I, how do I get into college? And he said, well, you send us your, your transcripts from high school. And I said, oh, I, I didn't get kicked out of high school, but they asked me to leave, and I never graduated. And a guy scratched his chin, and he said, hmm, you got to have a high school diploma. And I said, well, I took an equivalency test when I was in the Army. And he said, well, send that to us. And he said, and write a, an essay on why you'd like to go back to school. So I uh, said, okay, do you have some paper? He said, no, 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 you have a month and a half to go home, you know, compose it, think about it, write it. <laughs> and I said, I don't want to have to come back. Do you have anything to write on? He gave me an exam booklet and a pen, ballpoint pen. I sat down, I dashed something out. I sent them a copy of my equivalency test, which I'd never read the results, but apparently I had scored in the 99th percentile so i was in the you know top 
1% of the wow. U.S. that year. So between the equivalency test and that essay, they let me in at school, which, uh, you know, eventually I discovered they had a film department at NYU. Not initially. I didn't start as a film major. I started, uh, I started as a theater arts major. I had this weird, delusional, egotistical idea that maybe I could be an actor. And I signed up for the theater department and quickly learned that I have had absolutely no talent at <laughs> acting. So I switched it to uh, English literature and art. And in the end of my second year, second half of my second year, I needed a few extra credits and I poked through the catalog and I saw beginning film production. This is before the Tisch School of the Arts at NYU, before they even had a film school, but they did teach film classes. Right. And I signed up for that beginning film production, loved it, and I was like Al Pacino in Godfather 2 when he's in Sicily and he sees a girl and falls in love, and they, another one of his compadres says, He's been hit by the lightning bolt. Yeah. Well, when I took that film production class, I was hit by the lightning bolt, the lightning bolt of filmmaking. And I had so much fun. I knew, I got to tell you, I honestly, I swear to God, praise, praise the Lord. I knew at that moment, this is what I want to do with my life. And ever since, uh, I've never lost sight of that. This is, I fell in love. I got hit by the thunderbolt and wanted to be a filmmaker, make films. That's what I wanted to do. I'm curious, when you went to right. NYU, were you there at the same time as like Scorsese and all those guys? Yes. I was in a class with Scorsese, uh, Jim McBride, who directed oh, yeah. Big Easy, the remake of Breathless, ill-conceived idea, but uh, <laughs> let's see, who else? Um there were, there were several other people that became successful directors, too. Yeah, we were there at the same time. Uh, and again, before the Tisch School of the Arts was created, and we were all studying film, that was when the French New Wave hit the scene, early 60s. It was a very exciting time because it was a coffee shop right around the corner from our class where we would sit and talk about films. We would help each other when we were shooting our films. Brian De Palma was in the class too. He, was, he wasn't going to NYU. He was going to Sarah Lawrence. He was the first male student to get into Sarah Lawrence. And he always did love hanging around with a lot of pretty women. So <laughs> <laughs> that was true to his character. And he took a summer class that at NYU, uh, so I got a chance to meet him and become friends with him. And it was an exciting these, these are, period. Yeah, these are, you know, it's the big guys, Scorsese and De Palma and, you know, like, did you, you know, when you were, when you were working with those guys or when you were going to school with those guys, was like, were they, were you friendly with them when they started getting their first films or did you, did you sort of lose touch with them when they, before they went out and started making projects? 
Great question. Uh, our paths did diverge. You know, I stayed friends with him. I would go back to New York and I'd stay with uh, one of those guys. You know, I would often uh, stay at Jim McBride's apartment. And when he would come out to L.A., we would hang out. When Marty would come out to L.A., we would hang out. I actually tried to get Marty a job directing at Universal because when I, when I was at NYU, I won, uh, I did a short film that won a few prizes and won a scholarship. And Universal saw, noticed this and offered me a director's contract. And I was in my, just beginning my last year, and I asked if they could wait until I graduated. And they said, no, it's now or never. Uh, and the schools said, take it. You know, it's a great opportunity. You can always come back. So I left, and it started to work out. And uh, so Haig Mnugin, who ran the film department, he's a legendary guy. Marty talks about him a lot. When Haig Mnugin uh, called me up and asked how things were going, and I said, it's look, looks as if I'll be here for a while, Haig asked me if I would relinquish my scholarship money to Marty who wanted to start his graduate work at NYU. And uh, I did. So Marty and I stayed uh, in touch. And uh, until after Mean Streets, you know, I think he, our paths began to diverge. We never had a falling out, but as directors directing, we went off on our own. And I really missed the camaraderie that we had in film school where we would sit in coffee shops and talk about movies. And I didn't really discover that actually till I started working for Dino De Laurentiis. I did three films for Dino and Dino opened a studio in North Carolina, uh, Wilmington, North Carolina. And I remember going down to Wilmington and there would be three, four, five films in, if not in production, in pre-production. But the, so the directors would be there. And, you know, I'd had a chance to sit down and spend time and break bread with people like uh, Chimino and other guys like that. And it was just so much fun to be talking about movies with other movie makers. And yeah, you find that that's rare in, in Hollywood. Um, I think it's interesting too that people that, that don't work in show business have asked me before, like if directors are competitive with each other, and I've never found that. I think directors like to to support each other and and talk shop with each other, and they usually love movies, so they love talking about movies with each. I've never felt a competitive vibe with another director. Well, I don't know if that's true or not. I think I think there is a competitiveness. You know, I knew. I had a competitive streak up to uh, a period, must have been about my second or third film. Yes, what happened to me, you know, I'm just going to tell you this story. It doesn't make me look good, but it may help some other directors out there if they happen to watch this, is that I felt really competitive and I would feel envious of other directors if they made a movie that got good reviews, and I I was able to, I, I'd get envious, and that envy was almost a resentment 
It's, it's almost like I'm going to read the reviews. I hope it's a bad review because there's there's only one pie out there with so so many slices. And if this director gets a big slice, that's less that's going to be available for me. Now, I knew intellectually the fallacy of that kind of thinking. And I also knew that it made me feel bad to be doing that, to hope that somebody else failed. Ideally, I'd want everybody to succeed. And I understood that there's, there's not a finite pie. It's of infinite size. And the more good movies out there, the better the world would be. And I actually had to come up with a plan to get over this character flaw that I felt I had that was not making me feel good. Uh, It wasn't making me feel good to be envious in the first place, and it didn't make me feel good to, to witness this, to see myself doing that. You know, I wanted my friends to succeed. I've had a lot of great friends. Because it wasn't just Marty and Brian and Jim at NYU. It was that also that gang of directors that I became friends with at the Roger Corman studio. You know, Joe Dante, Alan Arkish, people like that. Who, let's see, Jonathan Demme, you know, co-edited uh, his film, his first film for Roger Corman. Uh, a lot of great directors came through that I got to meet, and I wanted them all to succeed. So I didn't, I didn't like seeing myself being envious. So I came up with a plan to get over this, and my plan worked. And I recommend this. What I decided to do, the way to get over this, I can't think my way out of this problem, but I'm going to have to act my way out of this problem. Every time I met somebody that wanted to be a director, I would grab them and mentor them, try to figure out how to help them, how to inspire them, how to encourage them. And so I've done that. And that's become a very important part of my life is mentoring young filmmakers, <coughs> which led ultimately to teaching at UCLA and and that sort of thing. But yeah, I, I've forgotten about Roger Corman. That also, sitting around with Joe Dante and Alan Arkish, Alan Arkish talking about films was very similar to sitting around at the coffee shops with Jim McBride and Don Dunaway was a classmate of mine at NYU. Don became a successful TV writer and producer, and he also co-wrote uh, or rewrote some of my films, like Cujo. He did a really important rewrite on Cujo. We were friends from NYU. Yeah, that, that almost sounds more like more like sort of there was something you had an insecurity about than than a, than a sort of straightforward competitiveness. Like it was more about you being unsure about something than wanting to make a better film than those guys you're talking about. Do you think? No. Yeah. Well, when I was when I said competitiveness, I wasn't thinking about competitiveness in terms of doing a, making a better film or being a better director. I was saying competitiveness in just in terms of getting the jobs and I being see. Okay. viewed yeah. as a success. You know? Right. Yeah. But you know, that, that was a long time ago. That, that, that plan, that technique I developed to, to start mentoring people that did the trick. I got to tell you, as soon <laughs> as I started doing that, <clears throat> yeah. 
I stopped uh, worrying about other people getting good reviews and started celebrating their successes. And you worked um, with Sidney Pollack for some time, didn't you? Well, he's one of the first people I met when I came to Hollywood. Uh, when Universal put me under contract, I uh, the the deal was that I would have to watch other directors on the lot at Universal work for six months, mostly television, all television directors. And then they would give me a an opportunity to direct uh, an Alfred Hitchcock hour, which which I did. And <clears throat> during that time when I was wandering around the lot, for the most part, they wanted me to watch directors who were directing other Alfred Hitchcock hours to prepare myself for that job. When I saw interesting people like Sidney Pollack, by the way, he wasn't a success yet at that point, but I knew he had come out of the neighborhood playhouse with, and studied with Sandy Meisner and had uh, been actually not only a star student of Sandy Meisner's, but an assistant teacher with Sandy Meisner. Uh, I wanted to see how he worked, and we became friends. And he, he kind of took me under his wing. I learned a lot from him. So, yeah, so I call him my mentor or one of my mentors also. That's he's yeah he's such an amazing talent. Um, it's, tell me a bit about working with Corman, how that came to be, and, and about your time working with Roger Corman. Yeah, after directing Second Unit on several films, Roger kept calling me up to edit, and I was working at that time at KCTI, so I had a good job. I didn't need a job, and I would just needed to leverage Roger's thinking to the next level and. Uh, I said, Roger, I really want to direct. Uh, and so a year or two later, he called me to uh, ask if I'd be interested in directing a John Sales script. And I, no one knew John Sales at that point, but I said, yeah, absolutely anything. And it. Uh, so my first film, Lady in Red, was born. Actually, there was another John Sales script a science fiction story that Roger sent me first. And for some reason, they, because of technical problems and setting up their special effects unit, that got delayed. So Roger sent me the script for Lady in Red, which was such a great stroke of luck because Lady in Red was much more up my alley. It had a lot of action and chases and that kind of stuff that I was already you know, skilled at, but it was also a character story. And I come out of the French New Wave. I mean, that's who I, I credit, you know, Godard, Truffaut, Rivet, Chabrol, all those people with being my inspiration. Yeah. And uh, so it worked out really well. I loved doing it. Uh, John Sales wrote the script. Jamie Horner did the music. I uh, had a lot of great actors in it. You know, Christopher Lloyd was in it. Uh, oh, and uh, let's see, Pamela Sue Martin, of course, played the lead. She was terrific. But the real, here, this is the real most important stroke of luck. Uh, when I was directing Second Unit for Roger Corman, among others, I did a directed Second Unit on a film called Avalanche, starring uh, Rock Hudson. And 
Eva Marie Sain, and co-starring in a smaller role, Robert Forster. Now, at one point, the director fell behind schedule and asked me if I would get some shots for him with Robert Forster. Normally, a second unit director doesn't work directly with the actors. They use stunt doubles and automobiles and that kind of stuff. But I had a chance to do this little scene with Robert Forster. uh, And I remember telling Robert what a great actor I thought he was. And I was familiar with his career going back to medium cool. And I said, I'm going to be a director someday. And I hope you'll be in it and my, in my film. And Robert said, well, when you got your first film, send me the script. They flash forward a couple of years. Roger gives me Lady in Red. I call Robert Forster. Robert says, oh, shit, I'm doing this film out at Disney called Black Hole. And I'm starring in it, and it's going to be a big film, and I'm going to be a star. And I said, well, great, good for you, Robert. You know, really glad for you. And he felt a little guilty, and I guess he said, well, send me the script, and I'll do it if I can do it for no money and no credit. You know, we'll just sneak it in. And I said, okay. And he said, what part you want me to read? I said, you can have any part you want, Robert. He he picked a small cameo in it, and he was a standout in that cameo. And it, it helped make it a better film, but it was a very small role. But the significance of that was that when I got my second film, Alligator, uh, I called Robert and asked him to star in it. And he did a brilliant job starring an alligator. And that's the film that really put me on the map. Oh, yeah. I have some uh, some alligator. I've definitely got alligator questions for you. I love alligator. I'm a big fan of that film. Um, you what? I'm a big fan of alligator. I love it. It's one of those movies that I saw it as a youngster on VHS. And then it disappeared. And you couldn't get it on DVD. And you couldn't get it on Blu-ray. And for the longest time, I would tell people about the movie and they would go on Amazon and say, well, I can't find it. I'm like, yeah, you can't get it. I don't know where it went. And um, it was hard to get a hold of, but it, you know, I had seen it. And then there was a crappy TV version. I remember that I had on like recorded off TV where I paused on the commercials and stuff. Right. Um, but I'm curious, like how did, so it was alligator kind of a, a before you leave that, uh, the uh, it's just been re-released in 4k ultra HD by the Shout Factory. Yeah, I've got, you maybe can't see it. I've got it on display right here. It's when people see this, they'll see it sitting beside me. Um, yeah, it's a beautiful transfer too. I'm, I love that for a movie that was unavailable for so long, that for a lot of people, their first time viewing, it's going to be in 4K and it looks like this. It looks great. It was uh, Joe Mangine was a photographer. He was a friend of the producers. Uh and I'm happy that I went with him. Uh, he came up with a brilliant way of photographing the actors or lighting the actors when we were down in the tunnels. Because when we were moving down in the tunnels, there was no place to put lights and there was no way to draw power. We were deep into the storm drain system of Los Angeles. And oh, really? You actually eyes. went to bed? I figured yes, that was yeah. all like backlot stuff or soundstage stuff, that, you know? I had one, I built one set that I used several times for uh, the Gutchel scene where he's getting rid of the dogs and stuff. But 
for the most part, we were in the real storm drain system and far deep enough into the storm drain system that we had no logistics, no electricity or anything like that. And Joe Mangin worked out this deal where he took the flashlight and he built this very tiny, thin wire frame that held some gauze filter right about three inches in front of the flashlight lens that reflected enough light back. It allowed most of the light through, but it reflected just enough back on the actors' faces that you could see them. It's a brilliant solution to the problem. And (laughs) yeah, it looks great on 4K. I just looked at it. I just got my copy a month ago. Yeah, it's, so when you start to ask, I, I, I interrupted. Yeah, what else did you? I was, I was I was curious, like if alligator, like you know, in terms of how it it, it found its way to you. Like I'm guessing it it probably began as somewhat of a sort of to cash in on the Jaws success and sort of that you know, we had, like Joe Dante had done Piranha, which uh, was great and is a lot of fun. You knew Joe Dante, of course, and then yes. you know, I think of there being two really good movies that at the time that Jaws kind of birthed. One of them was Prawn and the other was Alligator. Um, were you kind of aware of that when Alligator came to? Were you like, okay, I want, I'm interested, but I don't want to do some kind of Jaws knockoff? Uh, yeah, of course I was aware. Uh, I wasn't concerned about the knockoff aspect, uh, but I just read the script and the, the script was dreadful. There's no other way of putting it. It was. Oh, really? <laughs> I liked the basic idea because it was based on an urban myth I was very familiar with coming from New York, that there were albino alligators living in the sewer system. And I thought, we got to figure out some way to do. So <coughs> the way it came to me is that my agent, I guess Brandon Chase, who produced Alligator, uh, went to my agent uh, looking for a director <coughs> And I just done my first film and waiting, we're waiting for it to be released. And let's see. And so Brandon thought, well, great. I would be a good director for Alligator. And I looked at the script. I hated the script, but I liked the idea. So I told my agent, tell Brandon I'll do it if I can rewrite the script and bring in my own writer. He agreed. And I had just finished that Lady in Red that John Sales had written, and John and I gotten along really well. I'm a big fan of his. He'd written a great script. So John Sales rewrote Alligator. John is a fantastic writer. We had a couple of meetings. I told him what I liked about the idea and what I'd like to do with it, which was very minimal, and my ideas were very minimal and specific. Uh, I wanted... What I've always liked about horror films or monster films uh, is that one can use the monster as a metaphor for something. And I said, let's use the alligator uh, as the demon. And let's make the main cop character a cop. And the alligator are the symbolic. The alligator is symbolic of the demons in his head. And uh, he's got to somehow off the alligator to extricate the demons there from his past. That's all we said. And he came up with the whole story, locked stock and barrel. 
uh, in a few weeks and delivered a, a finished script that was didn't really need many rewrites at all. The only rewrites we did on the first draft that John delivered were to cut it down to length and maybe a few tweaks here and there. Yeah, it's interesting too because like when you watch the film now, there's there's all this stuff with like the, the doing tests on puppies and you know stuff that's sort of icky and you're kind of like you know it could very easily have made the movie sort of mean-spirited the 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 abuse of the of the puppies and you know the guy throwing dogs down this hole but somehow i you know i guess because of sales's script and and kind of robert forrester's because forrester plays like these he looks like a tough guy but he's got this warmth about him as an actor don't you think like there's something very likable about robert forrester he seems like a very sweet guy one of the most, he's a wonderful human being. Was a wonderful human being. He's a really good guy. It was none of that Jimmy Woods unpredictable <laughs> stuff. Yeah, I, love, intensity. I love Jimmy Woods too, and I got along great with him. But as you pointed out, he can be uh, unpredictable. Yeah. And Robert was predictable. He's going to be a good guy no yeah. matter what. Yeah. No matter what. And, you know, it's it's funny you see him in all these films because he, he was in so many movies and he was in films for so long. And he played a lot of cops. and I, But it, I always thought that was such interesting casting because he doesn't, he looks like a tough guy, but he doesn't feel like one. He's too kind. He's too, there's something kind in his eyes. And I remember seeing what Tarantino did with him in Jackie Brown, where he was so lovely right. with, with Pam Greer in that movie. Um you know, and, and then again, in Alligator, it's a horror movie. It has some really scary stuff and there's some intense scene. But the way he is with the puppy and like, he's just, he's so likable. And the jokes about his receding hairline. Like, I think he makes the movie sort of have a sweet side to it that you don't see a lot in horror. And I kind of love that about the film. I saw, I saw on the, on the, the uh, Shout Factory release of Alligator that Brian Cranston worked on, on the movie. What did Brian Cranston do on Alligator? He was a production assistant. I didn't know who the hell he was at the time. <laughs> Another great lesson in life for any of you aspiring filmmakers who are coming up to the ranks right now, be good to everybody you meet because they may be running the studio down the line. Did you so, did you did you ever run into Brian Cranston later in his career and, and he said to you, Hey, I worked on Alligator? No, I haven't. I thought it was great that he actually showed up to do something on the move on the on the on the Blu-ray. Like I was like he actually came and talked about being a PA. That's so cool. Yeah, I was I was impressed with that too. I didn't know that they were going to do that interview with him. I'm looking up. Uh, it was a production assistant on Alligator that wound up running a studio. I'm trying to. I oh, really? Remember. What? I, I'm, I'm guessing you were nice to all these guys then. Yes. <laughs> I remember working on a show when I was about 20, and I won't say his name, but the director was so mean. And years later, I was at a a, a pitch thing, and I was the producer of this that was they were finding they were going to finance a film. And the producer called me and he said, we're, we're thinking of hiring. And I had done another movie with this guy. And he called me and he said, we're thinking of hiring this director. This is his name. I saw, though, that he had done this movie. That, that didn't, didn't you work on this thing? And I went, oh, yeah, yeah. And he said, well, what's he like? And I said, he's an asshole. <laughs> and they didn't hire him. And it, that was my first lesson in, like, yeah, it's, you know, it, it comes back to bite people in the butt when they're jerks. 
Because this guy didn't get the job just because he was an asshole to me. <laughs> but I was, you know, no. it was my chance to get him back for it. I, he was so mean. Don't feel guilty. You know, other people may have said the same thing. I was honest. Yeah, they were like, what was your experience like with him? I said he was horrible. He was cruel and he was uh, he was very much he was very much a bully to um, he was sucked up to all the actors and he was mean to the crew. Uh, he would he would he wasn't even nice to his DP, which I thought was strange because I had never experienced a director who was such a jerk to their DP before. What was his problem? He I remember at one point he was having an argument with the DP and the AD came over and said, what's going on here? And he said, look, you know, I, I have to be nice to the talent because they're always sensitive. But these crew are these this crew, they're all wimps. They can't, they can't, they're, they're not moving quickly enough. They're whining about the days going too long. And it was just because the crew was mad because he was unprepared. He hadn't figured out his days. So every day was going long and he wasn't, he didn't know what he was doing or what he wanted. Um, so the DP and the crew were getting frustrated because he wasn't prepared. And I think, you know, it, I think it was a thing of, you know, I don't know if you've ever encountered this before, but those directors that come from such a place of ego that if that's if if they're if they're challenged on that, they react badly. They they it's almost like calling it a liar. You know what I mean? You're saying you're not you're you're not you don't know what you're doing here. You're not you're not organized. The DP was frustrated with him, and it was a good DP because he was like, "You don't know what you want, and how are we supposed to get our days when you don't know what you want?" So he was very angry that he didn't know what he wanted. Malcolm Gladwell wrote a great book called The Outliers about some of the serendipitous qualities that somebody needs to be a success. The idea being that talent's not enough. And being able to work with people is a really important ingredient you know, in success. So Cujo, which you did in 83, how did you get involved with Cujo? How did that project come in, into sort of your, uh, into your radar? Stephen King called Dan Blatt and recommended I be the director on the basis of Alligator. He had seen Alligator, apparently. Had you read Cujo when it was first brought to you? Had you already read the book at that time? No, I got the phone call from my agent and I read the book overnight <clears throat> met with Dan Blatt the next day. We got along great. He started making a deal with my agent, uh, but the head of acquisitions at 20th that was producing the film at that time was somebody I knew from the 60s when I used to own a little cinema tech on Sunset Strip. And this guy and I, apparently... Uh, he had an attitude about me. He didn't think I was right for the for the job, and he blocked me as director. So they hired somebody else to direct Cujo that didn't work out. So Dan Blatt called me back, and by the time that happened, 20th had dropped the film, and Warner Brothers had picked it up. So I came back on as director and what was your um, what was sort of your involvement with King on the project? Did you consult with him or or chat with him about it at all? When you say staying on the project, well, I'm not sure what you mean. Oh you, no, sorry. So what, on the project, what what was your involvement with Stephen King? Oh, I didn't. Me, I had no involvement with Stephen King on Cujo, other than the fact that he recommended me, and I gave him a courtesy call to thank him, and we talked briefly about it, and. I also told him that 
I thought the script needed a major rewrite. And he agreed. Basically, I told him I love the book. I, you, you write great characters. And in your book, you give them great dialogue. And you didn't, because he wrote the first draft of the script that they sent me. Oh, he me. did. Okay. okay. And I said, well, I, I would love to go back to the book and use as many scenes as possible from the book and dialogue from the book. And he said, fine. He said, do whatever you want. But just one thing, he said, Tad, the kid, and that he's got to live. In the book, he dies. But he says, Right. I was going to ask was, you about that. that. Yeah. <laughs> and, he's, and that was Stephen King saying, you, he has to live. And he got no argument for me on that. And uh, that's the only time I spoke to Stephen until Dino De Laurentiis called me and asked me to direct Cat's Eye. Okay. Uh, what he wanted to do uh, when I when he asked me, there was no script yet. He wanted to take three stories. Dino had bought the rights to all the stories in Stephen King's book Night Shift, which was the collection of short stories, and he wanted to. And so I got in touch with Stephen King, and we talked about it. And Stephen came down to North Carolina to Wilmington where he wrote the script. And so we had a chance to talk about it. I had a chance to look at drafts and scenes and give him my feedback. And he was a great guy to work with. Very much like John Sayles. Reminded me a lot of two guys who are the least pretentious people on the planet. Least Austin, two very successful, brilliant, talented people who are, don't appear to have any egos, uh, who are just unpretentious and down to earth and will, will show up for dinner uh, in a torn t-shirt. It's interesting too, because I've read, having read Cujo, and I read it again not too long ago, um, there's a, a bit read of a supernatural, the yeah, the book, yeah, there's a supernatural element in the book, sort of a suggestion that, that Cujo is more, possessed than it is something like rabies that but that was eliminated from the screenplay um was that king's call to take that that element out no that was my call and uh since it i wanted it not to be too much longer than an hour and a half feature length film uh, i had to take out most if not all of the subplots and uh that were in the book and it would have just taken too long and because we Stephen King and his writing can rely on the fact that the reader has read his previous book too, because in the novel Cujo, the dog is a reincarnation of a bad cop from the previous novel. So it. Yeah. To, from the to, dead zone, I think, right? Yeah. I forget the name of the book, but it was, uh, in order to make that clear in the movie, I would have to start adding material when I was trying to figure out ways to subtract material. Right. And I did I did keep one supernatural element in the script as long as I could, till finally I had to admit it wasn't working and take it out. And that was the monsters in the closet. I wanted there to be more ambiguity about whether there was actually some sort of monster, supernatural monster in Ted's closet 
And I shot stuff with effects, uh, uh, lighting, and tried stuff in post to try to show to the audience that there was there was something mysterious going on in this closet. It wasn't just the little kid's imagination. And it never never really seemed to work. It all seemed artifice. And right. so I just took it out. I think it works better. So also the other thing, is one of the things that attracted me to Stephen King's writing and that script is the fact that he's, a, aside from his supernatural elements, he's an extremely realistic writer. He writes full, complete, believable characters that have understandable lives. And I, Sidney Pollack always taught me that one should find the spine of a story when one is going to make a movie. That could be maybe described as the theme or something, some sort of overarching meaning to the story. And with Cujo, for me, what really interested me is all the problems that this family was having were all based on fear, imaginary fears. There's a difference between real fears and imaginary fear. Uh, the husband has lost an account. He's in advertising. He's afraid of financial insecurity, that he won't be able to support his family. They've moved out of the city to Maine to raise their family, uh, their child, and the wife is bored shitless, and she's worried that she's going to waste away her life living out here in this rural or small town. And their fears are filtering down to Tad, who senses it and beginning to imagine monsters in his closet. And it wasn't until they encounter a real fear, which is this rabid dog, which almost kills the the wife and her child, that they're able to put their imaginary fears into perspective and get back together as a couple. So the, the, the spine for me was how we have to learn to separate our imaginary fears from our real fears, that the only fears that deserve our attention are real fears. So I did not need any supernatural elements to tell that story. I had all the right. elements there with the dog catching rabies and the beautifully written things in the, in the book, the affair that the wife was having and, so that's how that how, that's why I left out the supernatural stuff. And I'm, I, you know, when I'm when I was watching the film again to prepare for for, you know, chatting with you today, I, I, I one of the risks to me of of the whole story with Cujo, and certainly as a film, more so I think than as a book, is people don't like violence against animals, especially dogs. You know, what I mean, they, it, it elicits a response in people that's almost you know, primal of just like, no, don't hurt people. You know, in a movie, you can do horrible things to people, but if you harm an animal, people go crazy. And so I was watching Cujo and it's like, even though Cujo's dangerous and he's done bad things, when she kills him at the end, I was still like, oh, the poor dog. Like, it's amazing that we can see, you know, this dog kill these people and try to go after this mother and still feel sympathy for the dog at the end. Were you ever kind of worried as a director approaching this going, how do I make sure that the audience won't see this story as too much of a drag? You know, that this woman and this child locked in this car and it's, it's you know, a lot of the movie is that. And then, you know, it's a dog and then bad things will happen. 
dog? Like, were you ever concerned about that aspect of it? Extremely concerned, and not with the dog attacking the family in the car. That I <clears throat> wasn't worried about. I was worried about her having to kill the dog at the end. Right. That, that as you point out, people will expect human on human violence and say it's just a movie, but not human on animal violence. As Joe Dante, as Joe Dante said to me, because I had a chance to talk to him about this before I shot it, Joe said, Louis, realism is not your friend when it comes to killing animals. Yeah. That's his Joe's way of putting it. Yeah. So I try to figure out ways to shoot it so they could happen off camera. Right. Yeah. I I mean I, that's something I noticed is, you know, when the when the dog comes back at the end, almost like at the end of uh uh Carrie, the De Palma film where the hand comes up, that last scare to really grab the audience. When the dog shows up and she shoots him, it cuts to the husband arriving so that we don't see the dog, you know, get hit or fall over or anything. Yes, precisely. Cause I was well aware as with Carrie, that the final shot, the final scene is going to determine the emotions the audience walks out the theater with, you know, when the film and yeah. the lights go up. And if they went, eh, and reacted in revulsion to her killing the dog, that would, that's the feeling they would retain when friends of theirs asked, hey, should I go see that movie? No, it's disgusting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's tough, too, because St. Bernard's in particular, when, when D. Wallace was on the show and I was chatting with D, I said it's particularly tough with a St. Bernard because they're such sweet dogs. If you've ever been around a St. Bernard, and I have, um, I grew up, uh, our neighbor had one, and it was the sweetest dog. They're not, they're not necessarily scary. They're big, but they're very gentle, sweet dogs. So seeing one, Absolutely, yeah. you know what I mean? You know what I mean? <laughs> so it's like, and that was the other thing I was asking Dee and I want to ask you about is, is working with the dogs. Did you enjoy directing dogs or, or did you find that uh, overtly just too, too difficult? No, I hate working with animals. I wound up being <laughs> typecast, you know, between an alligator, Cujo, cat's eye. Yes. Oh, you're the horror movie. I worked with animals. Horror movie uh, animal guy, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I had a great animal trainer on it. Uh, and he, the same trainer on Cujo and Cat's Eye. Matter of fact, he, he tried to talk us out of working with the St. Bernard. He wanted us to go with a Rottweiler or something because they're much more easily trainable, apparently. Right. Uh, we were locked into St. Bernard because of the novel. Yes. And there's something really fun about having to turn this sweet dog into a killer. Yeah. I'll tell you one of the things I would love to do. Uh, I was at a, one of these comic cons a few years ago and meeting my fan base. When one guy said, are you ever going to do a sequel or a remake? And I said, no, I don't think so. I can't do it any better. He said, you really should and I started thinking about it, and I thought, you know what's happening? If I did do a remake, I would do it from the dog's point of view. <laughs> That'd be so cool. Yeah. It'd be a film. Cujo would really be about Cujo instead of this yeah. family that is threatened by Cujo. And also that I, everyone, yeah, this same fan was talking about how much sympathy he had for this St. Bernard. And I thought that's why it gave me the idea. 
Well, he should be the hero, actually, of the story, the main character. And it'd be a great redemption. I'd have to figure out some way to make it a, a redemption story because I certainly believe in redemption myself. And the dog has a disease. He's not intrinsically. Yeah, that's the thing, dog. right? You can't. He's got it. a disease and he's got yeah, somehow he has to. Somehow he has to go to Betty Ford rehab or something and <laughs> come out a changed person, a changed dog. <laughs> and, and goes and starts working with children or something. Yeah. Yeah. An emotion becomes an emotional support dog. That's what he would have to well, do. I know. That last shot would be him in Switzerland with a little rum <laughs> keg of rum under his neck. <laughs> no, I think it's it's funny that they, you know, if the I can't even imagine if they had made the dog a Rottweiler. That wouldn't have worked at all because we would have expected the Rottweiler to be scary. That would have been right. interesting. Right. Yeah. Was that something that you ever considered was changing the, the breed of the dog? No, not at all. I didn't even think about it because of the book. Yeah. It's, it's already established. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I don't remember the dog trainer's name. He was great. He did... Prior to Cujo, we did a film in Australia about pigs called Babe, I think. Oh, yeah, did yeah. You ever see that? Yeah, yeah. It's a great movie. A great, yeah. Movie won Academy yeah. Awards. Yes. Um, yeah. did, so did Lee, did D become attached to the project through Dan Blatt? Because I know they had done Howling together. I think that's what she told me, was that Dan Blatt brought her to your attention. Yes, primarily. And that happened... Between my first meetings with Dan, where he attempted to hire me, and the second meetings where he brought me back after they let the first guy go, they'd okay. already put the, they'd already put the cast together. So I can't take credit for that, but it's sure they were sure great. Everybody, especially the Danny Pintero, who played Tad was a savant, this five-year-old kid, you know, is so good. He's, he's amazing in the film, yeah. It's one of those performances, yeah. too, where, like, you see sometimes child actors in films, particularly more, I think, in the last two decades, um, and there's almost this kind of, like, little adult thing to them that sort of doesn't feel real, and and, and his he that feels like a real little boy. That doesn't feel like some kid overly, you know, sort of trained kid actor. Some of that has to do with age, too. I've observed with other actors, like Drew Barrymore, for example, who was five when she did E.T. and was completely natural, a real child. But then I worked with her later in Cat's Eye. Uh, She was 11, I think. How old was she? So E.T., I think, was, what, 82? And then Cat's Eye was... she was... She must have been about nine. Yeah. It must have been about nine on Cat's Eye. So she was more self-conscious and aware right. that she was acting yeah. on Cat's Eye. Right, right. She had lost a lot of that innocence that she had. And I've seen, I, I think this what. And then after that, she did some films where she was she was really talented. So there, there was that period. Cat's Eye was a period where she was going from being an innocent, natural child actor to a child that was aware they were acting before they really mastered the art of acting, which she did. 
subsequently. And, you know, it's when I was watching the film, um, you know, looking at Dee's work in it. I mean, that's Dee's performance in the movie is so it looks exhausting. And it's, it's so, you know, she has to be dialed to 11 for half the movie, really. I mean, the first half, there's all this stuff where she's in you know, the family scenes and she's having the affair. And, and, and then, you know, but for the whole back half of the movie, she's just in this frenzied state. And Dee's performance is incredible. And I know Stephen King in particular has always championed her performance in the film. But when you were working with her on the picture, did you have to sort of help her come down from those scenes so that she wouldn't exhaust herself? I, yeah, I, I felt like I was her emotional support director of a lot of a lot of times. But I thought my job primarily with her was to stay out of her way because she seemed to be channeling that performance from the stratosphere. And uh, I did not want to interfere with that. Yeah, she was just awesome to watch, watch her do her thing, do her job. And I think working with Cat helped her a lot too because most of her scenes were with uh, Danny Pacero and he was so natural that she was working with a real person here, not an actor. Yeah. You know, for this scene where he has an epileptic fit, I, D tells me that she asked Danny, you know how to do that? And he said, yeah, don't worry about it. I'm fine. I've, I've seen, I've seen other people do this. And he just did it. He, so this little five-year-old kid was channeling his performance being completely natural. So he was giving such a realistic performance that Dee was able to respond off that too. So right. in addition to her, to all of her skill, she was, she was working with a real person here, you know, a child who was delivering the performance that she needed to respond to. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting too, when you watch, you know, the first act of the film, um, you know, Dee's character at the beginning of the movie is not, super sympathetic she's having an affair with and her husband the daniel who kelly character, he's kind of a lovely guy like he's going through this stuff at his job but he seems like a good dad and a good you know he's a good father and he's a good husband and Dean's <laughs> cheating on him and you're kind of like hey you know this this character is not super likable at first and i think that's a really interesting choice because i think it might have been a temptation to a lesser writer than someone like stephen king to just make her this lovely sweet lady so that when she's in trouble we're going to go oh no instead there's something that she has to work through you know what i mean in, in, at that at that in the in the second act of the film well i've always been of the school of thought that characters don't have to be likable they have to be interesting yeah and I think too, you know, Dee's performance is amazing and Danny's amazing, but there's some really good supporting work, you know, by everybody in the movie from uh, Daniel Hu Kelly and Chris Stone. Um, and uh, um, uh, what's Ed? Ed um, he plays the, the the farmer that owns the, is his name Ed Lauder? Is that the actor's name? Ed Lauder, yeah. Yeah, he's great too. Um, there's so much great sort of textured work by all the supporting cats that I think really helps so that by the time we get to the back half in the car, um, you know, there's a real sense of, of stakes in the movie. Um, but it's, you know, you're watching the, 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 there's some crazy camera work too in that car. And I, I couldn't help but think as a director myself watching you in the car, how did you, you know, when you first were approaching it, did you say, how am I going to keep this visually interesting when we're spending so much time 
in a car, you know, and I know that you had the great uh, Yann DeBount to, to work with. Did you and he spend a lot of time figuring those sequences out? Yes, exactly. Jan was, uh, Jan, yeah. When, uh, they hired, when they fired the other director and asked me to come on and replace him, the other director had been shooting for about three, four days. And so I said, I'll come in if I can scrap everything that he's already shot and reshoot from the beginning. I'll stick with the same cast. I loved the way it had been cast. That was primarily Dan Blatt. And uh, I said, but I want to bring in my own crew. I hadn't worked with Jan de Bont, but I knew of him from his Dutch films, his early films, uh, Kichi Tipple and Turkish Delight. And we'd met each other socially, and he was looking for an opportunity to start working in Hollywood at that point. So I brought him on, and Jan and I got along really well. I love his camera work. I love his... Uh, and he's a film buff too, so we could talk about films and we would ride to the set every day together and talk about scenes that would be coming up in the next week or two. And I was trying to do exactly what you're asking about, which is find interesting ways to tell the story visually because I knew we were going to be in that car, trapped in that car, along with Dee Wallace, for weeks. For example, there's a scene at the beginning of the film, very beginning, uh, where Tad is taking a leak in the middle of the night and he goes back to his bedroom and has to flick off the light and jump into bed before his imaginary monsters come out from under the bed. And I was able to say, Young, you know, it would be really cool if we, because I used to do that as a kid, I said, I want to extend this moment. I want to shoot it in slow motion. And I think we could do a cranes are flying shot. Now, Jan knew what I was referencing. The cranes are flying was a, a Russian film that came out in the early 60s. And at the end of this sh- film, there's this kid running away from a German tank. And as he runs under the camera, the camera follows him, goes upside down. So at the very end, as he's running away, the world is turned upside down. So I said, yeah, why don't we do a cranes are flying shot? And I described it. That you know, be funny when he's running away from the light switch and trying to jump into bed, he's slow motion, and the camera will go upside down so that when he leaps onto the bed in slow motion upside down, it'll look like he's falling into a, a well of darkness. And that's all I had to say. And then, a couple of weeks later, when we got to that set, Jan had built a little superstructure in the room where we could mount the camera and get that shot. And it was the same thing with that car inside the, many other times, but the shot inside the car, I was trying to- The camera turns all the way around? Yeah, I said, it was a scene, yeah. I said, this is a scene where D. Wallace has been bitten by the dog and struggles to get back in the car, manages to slam the door shut, but she's been bitten, traumatized, and she's about to faint. And Tad is screaming in the back. And it'd be fun to go from her slamming the door over to her screaming, I mean, to her past starting to pass out, continue moving around to Tad as he's crying and continuing the same movement back to her saying, don't open the door. She knows she's about to pass out. Don't open the door. And then back to him screaming, and just speed it up until she passes out. Right. 
again, I just, we talked about, and there, there was a, we had that kind of conversation almost every day when we were on the way to the set. <clears throat> and a couple of weeks later, Jan, we were shooting at the farm and Jan said, I want to show you something. And he bought a second Pinto and they pulled it out of the barn and they built a superstructure on top of the car with a camera mounted on top and a, with a periscopic swivel lens shooting down. He'd worked out all the logistics and technical stuff. He could do amazing stuff. Now, Jan, we were talking earlier about screamers on the set or people that are hard to work with. Jan was hard to work with. He would do a lot of screaming and yelling and throwing of stuff <clears throat> to get his crew moving. And he had everybody in fear, all his camera staff in fear all the time. But he could figure out a way to make the most difficult shots work and get them done. That was a great experience for me because I, working with a great producer, great actors, great cameraman, and great editor, too. We don't want to forget Neil Maklas, the editor. The editor was either Neil Travis, I Neil think. Neil Travis was the editor, yeah. Who, after Cujo won the Academy Award for the, what is it, with Wolves? Dancing with Wolves? Dances with Wolves, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Neil Travis, he, he edited that one, the Academy, where he did a great job. So he, he had that magical touch. And I accidentally mentioned uh, Neil Maklis before, who was the production manager, who was great. And I just want to just tell one great story about him, which made a big difference in the whole film. We had been shooting on the farm for about a week, and it had been raining for a week. Every day we would go out and rehearse. We would have our shots in mind. We'd set up. And then we would have to put tarps and canvas and plastic over the cameras and equipment and everything, hoping the rain would stop. And maybe it would stop raining for an hour or two in the afternoon. Click on the lights, call out the crew, shoot a shot or two, and then it would start raining again. After about a week of this, I was falling behind and... I was standing in an umbrella on the hillside by the camera <clears throat> as the rain is pattering on the umbrella. And Neil Maklis came walking up the hill towards the set from his temporary production office. And traditionally, production managers are the guys that look at the watch and give the director a hard time for <laughs> keeping on schedule. Yeah, Neil's walking up the hill whistling. Neil! I go. He says, what? I said, what the fuck are you whistling for? It's fucking raining. It's freezing. We're falling behind. We're almost a week behind schedule. And Neil looked at me and he said, Louie, it's only a movie. <laughs> you know, and I subsequently learned that he had lost his son to cancer the previous, you know, sometime during the previous year. And he he had things in perspective. That's a that's a and really great story. <laughs> Not the cancer, took moments, but the the. the that took a lot of pressure. Yeah, took a lot of pressure funny. off. Yeah, yeah. I, I it was funny. The first movie I shot in in California, <clears throat> I was working with a cinematographer named Dean Cundy. Uh, are you familiar with Dean's work? Yeah, sure. And uh, 
I was really excited to to work with Dean because I had only worked with, you know, pretty inexperienced cinematographers at that point. So I was pumped to be working with, you know, John Carpenter's DP and he'd worked with Spielberg. He'd done all these, worked with all these great directors. But I didn't know kind of what, you know, I would learn from him or sort of how to, to, to just sort of talk to a DP like that. So I was sort of nervous. And I remember the first day of shooting, um, we had this fairly complicated setup and we were shooting a house right in Hollywood. And, uh, and Dean sets everything up and everything's ready to go. We're about to shoot. And I, and Dean says, are you happy with it? And I went, yeah, it's great. And then all of a sudden I was looking and I was like, it looks so good, but there's just something more that we need here. And I was trying to figure out what it was. And Dean looks at me and goes, it's missing something, isn't it? And I went, yeah, I just don't know what. And he went, give me a second. And he jumped off. He was on a dolly and he jumped off and he, cause he, he operated himself and he ran over and Dean was in his, you know, seventies at this point. We're looking at the shot together and he said, it's missing something, isn't it? And I said, yeah, I just don't, it looks great. And it, it there's, everything's fine. I can't figure out what, what it's missing. We're looking at the shot and, and, and Dean says, give me a second. I have an idea. And he runs over and he get this takes this like kind of fabric, like a doily kind of thing. And he runs over and he starts putting it on the lights and all of a sudden, he sort of casts this like hazy kind of gauzy look onto the shot and the whole shot just clicked into place. And I was like, I don't know why that worked, but it changed the whole thing. And it all of a sudden, it went from being good to sort of it hummed now. And it, it and I and that was when I realized I was like, you don't always kind of you can't always put your finger on it. And having a great DP, they can sure help you figure out that stuff sometimes. Right. Let's talk about Cat's Eye. Uh, a, a film you did in 1985 for, for Dino De Um How did that project come to you? When Dino called me and invited me to do Cat's Eye, I'd already directed Fighting Back for him. The first film I did for Dino was a film called Fighting Back. I hadn't met Dino. My agent said, Dino De Laurentiis would like to meet you. And I... At that time, Dino had an office half a block from my agent's office on Cannon in Beverly Hills. So I went to the meeting. I showed up early. Dino hadn't arrived yet, and I was sitting in his outer office when he breezed through and asked me to come into his office. I followed him into his office. Dino was such a lovable, interesting, fascinating character. I learned so much from him. It was already legendary at that point. And he had a big office with a gigantic desk. And he never seemed to have anything on his desk except a lamp, a telephone, and whatever project was under discussion at that particular meeting. At this point, the desk was empty. So there was Dino, kind of a, with a diminutive sort of height, you know, sitting behind this gigantic desk. And I sat down in the seat facing the desk and he just stared at me. And I looked at him waiting for him to say something and he <laughs> just staring at me. I said, finally I broke the silence. I said, you know, I don't know why you invited me in, but I'm really happy to meet you. And he said, I see your film, Alligator. It's a good film. And I said, thank you. He said, I only see it 10 minutes. And I thought, oh, wonder if he watched the beginning at the end. I said, what, the beginning at the end? 
I don't know. It's only 10 minutes, but it's a good film. We make a film together. Shortly after that, he sent me the script for Fighting Back. That's how we got started. And so did Cat's Eye was a property he ended up with, and he just called you up and said, do you want to do this? Is that how Cat's Eye came into your... Well, I'd done Fighting Back. We had gotten along very well. Uh, And he wanted to... I had several meetings with him in between, and we... I began to get to know him on a social basis, New Year's Eve parties, and he he opened up a restaurant in Beverly Hills that he would invite me to. So we we had a relationship going by that point, and he was also developing a relationship with Stephen King, and because and he had just finished shooting Fire Stephen King's Firestarter in his new studio that he opened in Wilmington, North Carolina. I think Firestarter was the first film that he shot there. And so he wanted to do something else with Stephen King and with Drew Barrymore, who had been in Firestarter, I think. So he came, he made a deal with Stephen King to take three of his stories from Night Shift, the collection of short stories that Stephen King had written, and figure out a way to combine them. And so I had an opportunity to uh, actually work with Stephen King on this script, which meant mostly just uh, watching him work. I mean, I didn't, Stephen King, he would tell me what he was planning to do. We'd have discussions about it. I might throw in a few ideas. He'd go off and write stuff and deliver it. So that's how Cat's Eye came about. And, you know, this was sort of unique for King in that he he actually wrote the script for this project, right? There wasn't another writer on it. Yeah, because I know, I mean, like on Cujo, there was different writers. I know King sort of gave feedback, but here he was writing it. Yeah, on Cujo, he had read the original draft, which wasn't very good, but uh, he did. I thought he did a wonderful job with uh, Cat's Eye, and... I was able to, uh, I think, bring a lot to it in terms of structure and brevity and having a good sense of how long a certain scene or story could be sustained. It was a real thrill. Did you find it collaborative? Like, was he open to ideas and feedback? He always seemed to be open. I did not try to, I didn't come up with some great ideas about dialogue. I mean, I, when working with somebody who's that talented, you just want to sit back and not get in the way. Right. I mean, that's that's a basic leadership role. Uh, same thing with actors. If they're doing their job like Dee Wallace, I just want to stay out of her way, you know, give her all the emotional support I can and let her do her thing. Yeah, it's, that's, I mean, it's. It's an important lesson I think learned sometimes too. And you're when you're early as a director, you think you kinda got to get your fingerprints all over everything <laughs> and you sort of start to realize, wait a minute, sometimes my job is just to stay out of the way of something that's going well and keep support make it feel supported and you know, keep it moving. Very much so. And um to to stay out of the way to give emotional support when somebody's doing a good job, uh to make sure Everybody seems to be have similar motivations, whether it's the grip on the set or the actor 
You know, they, they just want to be appreciated and collect their salary at the end of the week. <clears throat> so praise, honest praise is a very important leadership quality. Did you find, you know, and you look at something like Cat's Eye, uh, which just was released in 4K, I believe. Um, have you have you seen the 4K remaster that they just put out? No, I haven't. No, I haven't seen it yet either. <laughs> I'll, I'll check it out. Um, this was your first time doing, you know, in the anthology sort of format, I'm assuming, right? Which is kind of a different format for a filmmaker than than sort of standard film. Yeah. Movie. Did you enjoy working in that format or how do, how do you feel about the anthology format? I enjoyed it. I was fully aware that it's not the most commercially successful kind of format uh, for good reason. When people sit down for an hour and a half or two hours, they want to get swept up and carried away by the story. And if the story ends every 15, 20 minutes and you got to meet a whole new bunch of characters and reorient yourself, it's just too much work. Yeah. So I I don't think uh, anthology films are ever that successful. Um, I'm trying to think. There's the odd exception, but I think you're right for the most part. You know, there's a there's a. Yeah, I mean, what's an odd that? exception? Uh, I think some of the Amicus ones that like uh, Peter Cushing did. There was a couple of those ones that were fun, like Black Sabbath, the Mario Bava movie. That one's a good anthology film. Um. Uh, Trilogy of Terror with Karen Black has one really great segment in it, but the whole film doesn't really work. Um, yeah, it's, I, I like some, but maybe, you know, I think it's a guilty pleasure thing. I'm not sure they work because they're anthology. You know what I mean? I think they're just fun and you find things in some of them that you like. Um, but uh, mostly if you look, in, especially in horror, because that's where you find most anthology films, most of them don't succeed. I mean, Creepshow, I guess, did well for Romero and and, Car- and uh, Stephen King. People uh, liked that. How did Twilight Zone do? That movie, uh, yeah, there's an, an interesting film, isn't it? Lots of stories about the making of that movie. Um, did you like the series Twilight Zone? Yes. Yeah, see that? But do you think that's different? Because each, that was a sh- serial show in each episode you know, stood on its own. It wasn't a feature. I think when people go to a feature, they have a feeling of of wanting to see a third, a three act ish story be told. And when it's broken into three different, like you said, there's different characters. It's being turned around every thirty minutes. Let's say, I think people kind of have a tendency to go, "Well, the second story sucked, and the first one was okay, and the third one was the best." And that kind of, you know, you don't want that with a movie. You don't want people to break it apart in that way. I don't think. No. I mean, it, it, Cat's Eye certainly has its fans, and uh, but it just didn't do that well commercially. And I knew that going in. I knew that going in. <clears throat> but I did it for several reasons. One, I wanted to maintain this relationship with Dino. Right. And with the relationship with Stephen King, because uh, I'd already done Cujo at that point. And uh, I thought it would be fun. Uh, I thought it'd be, oh, we had a lot of, before I got started with on the film, we had a lot of discussions about how it would be done, what kind of techniques we would use, and everything from the animatronic troll to miniature sets and stuff. And for me, I thought 
we were bringing back a lot of techniques, special effects techniques that hadn't been used since the silent days, like hanging miniatures. Yeah. Uh, Do you know what those are? Yeah, yeah. But explain it for the listeners if they don't know what they are. Well, a hanging miniature is when you will build a large architectural piece. For example, let's say uh, you want to recreate Acropolis in ancient Greece. You uh, you build that in miniature, and you hang it in front of the camera so that it blends perfectly with the whatever's on the set. In the or usually this, these are used in an exterior scenes where you you build a set with maybe the first ten feet of the Acropolis, then you hang the hanging miniature in the foreground. Let me see if I can do illustrate this. The hanging miniature is in front of the camera in the foreground, and it looks like it's part of the background. And uh, it it works great because it's real. Uh, and if you're shooting outside, the same light that's lighting in the background is also lighting your hanging miniature, and that helps blend the two. So anyway, there were a lot of techniques that we used in the film that I thought would be fun to work with and learn about to in a way, I approach it just like a an exercise. The, the producer on the film was a, a sort of a veteran horror producer, Milton Sabotsky. Is that how you pronounce his last name? You know, I have no idea. Yeah, there's a producer. I, I believe his name is Sabotsky, and he had done all kinds of anthology horror films, including some of the Peter Cushing ones. Are you uh, talking about Cat's Eye? On Cat's Eye, yeah. You know, I, I can't tell you... Kevin, how many times I've had experiences at the screening when we finish a film when the producers come up and introduce themselves to me? <laughs> right, yeah. People that I've never met. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, the, he's there's a producer on Cat's Eye who is kind of a veteran of the horror anthology format. Um, but I guess, yeah. And then, of course, the cinematographer was Jack Cardiff. Um, now, Jack Cardiff, yes, what a character. What a, yeah, kind of a legend in the horror world. Right. Was, uh, you know, he had directed some of the, worked with Freddie Francis and all those guys and been around in the horror circles for eons. Were you familiar with his work when you when when you were working with him on the project? Were you excited to work with Jack Yes, Cardiff? yeah, yeah, very much so. And he also directed some good films, too. What was he like on the set? Was because he he would have been on an age by that point, right? He was not that old. Uh, I'm sure he must have been around, but I don't remember. And that tells you how active he was on the set, <laughs> right? He uh, might have advised or I something. Was, all my dealings have always been directly with Dino, right? You know, and he's always very much on the set. He's always a he's a very available guy. I mean, I could. <laughs> walk up to his office and knock on the door. I mean, on the door jam, the door would be open. So he he was a very accessible person, a very easy person to get along with, very smart producer. And uh, I, I got along with him very well. What about Martha, his wife? I got along really great with her, but I would, at that point in her career, she was a neophyte producer right uh martha 
was great. She was um, smart, pleasant. And I knew her before she even met Dino. So we had a long way. We were friendly. And she was kind of like learning on the job. But she worked her worked her ass off. And when it came to creative decisions, it was I would always deal directly with Dino. And how did how did um Jack Cardiff end up being involved as the cinematographer on the project? Did you hire him or did Dino bring him on? Or when Dino asked me to direct Cat's Eye, and I said yes. I wanted to make sure that I brought in a few key people because this was my second film for Dino and the first film, Fighting Back, I had pretty much worked with a crew that he selected. They were all great, except for one thing, they were Italian and I had a very hard time. I couldn't communicate directly with the cinematographer. I had an assistant director, Pepe Lopez from Spain, who was multilingual who had to translate everything. And the problem with that was every once in a while, Pepe would finish translating what I was saying before I finished my sentence to, to Pepe. So I suspected it wasn't, my message wasn't always getting through accurately. Right. I couldn't, I couldn't trust that. So I said to Dino, uh, I want to pick my own cameraman. And he said, he didn't like that idea because he wanted, he likes working with an all Italian crew. Right. Now the, the crews are great. They're people he knows from Italy and they work hard. They're talented. And they were so pleasant to work with. But I wanted to be able to communicate with the DP, you know, and I, I'd worked with Jan de Bond, who, uh, so I wanted to work. Jan wasn't available. I would have asked for him. So I went with the number two guy on my list, another European, a German named Michael Ballhaus, who at that point hadn't worked in the United States yet. And so Dino didn't like the idea of working with a German. I mean, he <laughs> grew up in Italy during the Second World War. Sure, yeah. And I insisted that he... Dino put all these roadblocks between me and Ballhouse that he would have to meet with Ballhouse first. So I set up a meeting. Ballhouse came in and Ballhouse is incredibly charming and his English is impeccable. And Dino liked him. Dino reluctantly liked him. But then he, he began to say to Michael Ballhouse, so he, he wants it too much of money. And he wasn't asking for a lot. <laughs> And while we were negotiating, Dino kept dragging it out. Marty Scorsese hired Michael Ballhouse to shoot something for him, and he was gone. That was it. Uh -huh. So we were getting close to our start date, and we compromised on Jack Cardiff. How did how did you like working with Jack Cardiff? I like working with Jack a lot. I mean, he's a fantastic cinematographer. He is what they call in Great Britain a lighting cameraman, which means he's responsible for the lighting. You know, they have a system in England, or at least at that time, in which the operator and the lighting cameraman were two separate people. And if you wanted to move the camera, you had to work that out with the operator. 
And then that Cardiff would just be responsible for the lighting. And a matter of fact, the less you move the camera, the more he liked it. And I liked to move the camera. So we were butting heads occasionally in that respect. He's a very meticulous guy, fantastic. He's got a great eye and would light scenes beautifully. But the difference between him and Jan de Bon is with Jan de Bon, if the actor uh, did something a little different, Jan would usually keep the lighting loose enough that the actors had some freedom in the set. With Cardiff, he did not. So that was, that was a pro. There was a systemic operating, functioning conflict there. Right. I mean, nice personality. He's very talented at what he does. But we got through it. I mean, he's the lighting is great in the movie though he he certainly uh he lit the hell out of it which is which is always nice yeah, but yeah um i was when i was revisiting the movie to talk to you i was watching that that whole opening sequence with all the sort of king stephen king homages you know the saint bernard chasing the cat from cujo and the christine the car pulls up and all that stuff was that all in king's script or did you guys just add that in on a production level for fun all those king references no that stuff i put in just for the fun of it that was not supposed. The original opening of the film, it was a. We shot. I shot a prologue, which the studio cut out. Uh, the way Stephen King, he came up with an idea to combine the three short stories by adding a short story and tying them all together with an old wives' tale that cats can steal children's breath. And in the prologue, Patty Lapone, the mother, comes up to find her daughter, Drew Barrymore, not breathing, and she sees the cat in the room, and after calling the paramedics and they arrive, she goes after the cat. And her husband is a survivalist with a huge armory in the basement. And she goes down to the basement, gets an assault rifle, a couple of clips of ammo, and goes after the family cat. And the process shoots apart the entire house, just makes a mess as the cat is scrambling here and there, trying to get out of the path of fire. And eventually, after shooting at the cat in the living room, the plate glass window is all the glass particles are falling in slow motion. And a cat takes off through the falling glass, disappears outside the house, and winds up wandering through the streets in which I did a lot of homages to other Stephen King films. Gotcha. But the studio thought the opening was a little over the top. I did it. It was done very broadly. In retrospect, maybe it was too broad. But it seemed to feel right at the time. And uh, the head of the studio said, it's over the top. And I said, haven't you seen the rest of the film? The whole <laughs> film is over the top. There, you're like, there's a troll in this movie. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, Does that footage still so, exist of that opening? Did it, did it, like it got shot and everything. Do you know what happened to that footage? No, I mean, I had a, a VHS work print of that scene. I tried to find it recently for the reissue of the, and I couldn't find it. Oh, it'll pop up somewhere. I don't have it. I had it 
digitized, and I just haven't been able to find the file card that it's on. Right. But um, it's a, it's not something I really wanted to include in the reissue because it was a work print and it was missing shots, special effects shots, plate shots. Right. Yeah. It has grease pencil marks on it and everything. Yeah. So it's, it's a little it's a little ragged. Yeah. Well, it's funny well, to me too to watching this movie. Like you know, your previous King movie was a dog. This one's a cat. Um, who, what's easier to work with, a cat or a dog? Well, dogs are easier to work with, clearly yeah, because I would have guessed that. <laughs> yeah. Well, they they're motivated by different things. Dogs like to please. They are motivated by affection and approval. And cats are different. Cats don't give a shit. The only thing that motivates them is food. Right. <laughs> when a cat knows it's going to get a treat after it performs a stunt correctly, it'll do the stunt. But after it's gotten its initial treat and isn't hungry any longer, it thumbs its nose. I'm out of here. Well, there's some great cat performance in Cat's Eye. Like, you know, there's been a lot of horror movies with cats in them. But I think, you know, I, I'm sure you use multiple cats, but this is one of the, I think one of the better cat performances is the cat in, in Cat's Eye, just for, you know. Yeah, for very much so. And I had the same animal trainer on both Cujo and Cat's Eye, a guy named Carl Miller. And uh, he was brilliant. He So he, he gets most of the credit for the cat performance. And then, of course, you had... On top of animals, you had a, a child, Drew Barrymore, who was a little older now than I guess ET and stuff. Um, and you were talking earlier about how she had sort of started to become a little more aware as an actor by that point. Did that provide sort of new challenges with with her as a child performer? Now that she was starting to sort of see herself as an as an as a young actor by that point, it's a new challenge, definitely, and it was a learning process for me. And I was <laughs> that's where I learned that. Uh, because I'd worked with a five-year-old on Cujo uh, in which uh, there's more make-believe and pretend and game-playing. Uh, when you when Drew was working on Cat's Eye when she was nine, I think, it's she's aware of herself, she's aware that she's acting, and uh, so it was, it was it was a bigger challenge, sure. And, you know, one of the fun things I think with Cat's Eye, just in general, is, is it's it's got such a great cast, you know, and uh, um, the first segment, the, the smoking one, um, you know, has, we've talked about a bit, the great James Woods um, uh, in it. And, uh, you know, one of the things I was thinking watching that segment as a former smoker is like, I wonder if people who have never been smokers will appreciate what how honest that episode is <laughs> because when you're trying to quit smoking it is there is torture. Um did was Jimmy Woods a smoker? Did he kind of connect to that aspect of the story? He had been a smoker. Uh I think he had quit by that point. Right. So he definitely understood the the difficulty of quitting. What a good actor he is. Oh, he's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. I've, I, people have always, because I've always been a fan of his work. He's one of my favorite performers. And 
And I've always, you know, and I kind of miss that he doesn't really work anymore. I, whatever the reasons, the politics and all that shit. But, but I think he's a wonderful actor. I always, I would watch movies when I was young just because he was in them. I would go to the theater and see it just to see the new James Woods movie. Um, but you know, he had this got developed this reputation for being sort of difficult. But, but that wasn't my experience with him. And you said that wasn't your experience with him either. No, definitely not. Did he? Did he? Did you have a relationship with him prior to the film? Had you met him socially or anything, or did you, did you meet him on this project? I met him on the project, and uh, we had a we decided to instead of having a rap party, or in addition having a rap party, which they usually have on films, let's have a starting party. And so we had a because we were on location in Wilmington, unlike Hollywood. The nice thing about shooting down in Wilmington, North Carolina at Dino's studio was that everyone, the actors, the crew, the cinematographers were all there and living there, either in homes or hotels. And so it was much easier to get people together for social activities because they were separated from their normal routine and friends and that sort of thing. So we had a, party before we started shooting and Jimmy and I had a long conversation. We got along well from the very beginning. Yeah, he's he's great in the movie. I love that scene with him, um, Alan King, who's really funny in the movie. Um, that scene where Woods goes into Alan King's office and Alan King says, you know, can I see your cigarettes? And Woods is sure and he gives it to him and Alan King freaks out and starts smashing the cigarettes <laughs> and screaming and yelling. Was that like... Was that scripted that way or was that improvised? It's such a crazy scene when Alan King loses it like that. It cracks me up every time. I anything. No, I did you I, did that was do that? No, Alan King did that on his own and, and I think uh I'm trying to remember the conversation that preceded that. I think it was something like uh, Alan King asked me, What do I do when I take the cigarettes? And then me saying something like, Surprise me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Did you have fun working with Alan King? Oh, right. Yeah, he was great. He's so much fun in the movie when he when he comes down in this sort of one piece white suit and he's singing the Sting song and all that. He really committed in that. How did the Sting song get involved in the in the project? You know, it's used to great effect in quite a few scenes, and the lyrics work perfectly, kind of with the whole movie. Was that in post, or was that something that they got integrated on at, at an early stage? The song, yeah. Oh, that was Stephen King's idea. As you know, he's a student of popular culture. He's got his own band. Uh, he anything you want to know about music, he'll tell you. Uh, he wrote that into the script. So Dino tried to go out and buy the rights to the song and couldn't. They were way too expensive. But then he found out if we hire a sound-alike group to record it, to cover it, that it'll be hell of a lot cheaper. But that was Stephen King's idea. It's funny because in my memory, it was always the Sting version. And then recently when I watched it, I was like, wait a minute, that's not Sting. <laughs> I had never... <laughs> piece that together until until recently that it wasn't Sting's version. Um now it makes sense. It's save a buck save a buck for sure. Um this and then the, this the second segment, the one with Robert Hayes and Kenneth McMillan, um I have a, a fear of heights. 
So that segment was always rough on me because it would because it was too it freaked me out too much. The idea of being on that little ledge and did you did you think that that segment was sort of the creepiest of all the segments just because of what it played on that that you know the, the fear of death I think is the most imminent in that particular episode. I never thought of it as being creepy myself. Uh, I was trying to, you know, capitalize on people's fear of heights. And that meant that I was primarily focused on trying to make those straight down shots of the street below realistic when it was actually only eight feet below him with miniature cars and stuff. Yeah. So that was a, that was a challenge for me. I was mostly, I mean, I loved working with the actors. I loved the comedy that Stephen King built into the script, and I, uh, but I was really thinking a lot about the challenge of making the special effects work and making it realistic. Right. I mean, I think tonally that segment is quite a bit different than the the other two. Because the, the one with the troll is fun. You know what I mean? It's a troll. That's how scary. That's more, you know, you know what you're, that's broader. And the first segment, there's a lot of more broad comedy with, you know, with, with the cigarette smoking stuff. That one was just, I always found the second segment was, uh, tonally was more, a little more serious. It's still, Ken, uh, Kenneth McMillan still, you know, he's kind of crazy and, and he's this nut job. But, but that fear of heights is just so much more, kind of instinctual for people than, you know, a troll or quitting smoking. Yeah, it was interesting, you know, that uh, when I was working on it and wondering, constantly wondering which scenes audience, because each episode had its uh, different challenges with different cast of characters and uh, I never knew which ones were going to be successful and which ones wouldn't. <clears throat> I just tried to do each segment the best I could and keep my fingers crossed. <laughs> like when you got the script initially and first read through it, did you did you have sort of a favorite? Did you go, well, I like this segment the best? Or did you, how did you look at it in terms of, of, of the, you know, how you viewed each segment? I can't say I had a favorite. Uh, I have a favorite when it's all finished and done and that's Quitter's Inc., Right, but I had no way of knowing how good it was going to turn out when I was shooting it. Do you think a lot of that has to do with with Woods's performance? Oh yeah, a lot of it. A lot of it. Yeah, most of it has to do with uh, Jimmy's performance, but it also has to do with the cleverness of the idea, and that I think more people can relate to trying to give up smoking. And then if you then falling off a ledge and if you describe that episode as a guy who goes to a mafia run clinic to give up smoking where they break your legs, if you slip, yeah, it gets people to chuckle. It's easier to describe in a interesting kind of way. Right. Yeah, I mean, when I watched it again recently, because the first time I saw this movie, I was pretty young and I wasn't certainly wasn't a smoker. But having quit smoking now at the stage of my life, watching it now, I was like, oh my god, that scene where he's in the car and he kind of tries to lower himself and smoke in the car because no one could see yeah. him. Then 
you do shit like that when you're quitting smoking. You're worried right. about being caught. Not, and by who, I don't know, but but you do worry about that stuff. Um, and then, of course, the third segment with the, the little troll. Uh, you know, I loved that when I was younger because I loved the little troll. He was such a cool little creature. You know, Carlo Rambaldi, who made him, who, of course, done E.T., made this neat little creature. Um, you know, which, of course, I'm sure now would be done with CGI. But, but uh you know, were you happy with the creature that that Rimbaldi made for the for the segment? <laughs> <laughs> You're like, man, not tons. Did you did it just not do all the things you wanted it to do? It was it yeah. The animatronics were only minimally effective, and uh, God, it's so long ago. I can't really remember. I remember when I first looked at drawings, uh, it looked too um, too pudgy. I was, but it worked in in the final analysis. I think it did because when I think of it now, the particularly in the eighties, there was a lot of cool little creature movies, and now that's all done with CGI. But I have affection for the mechanical creature movies. And that one sticks out of me as one that I loved when I was a kid and I saw this movie. So, you know, I think there's yeah. there's something to that. What else do you want to, is there something else important that you want to talk about? No, I just wanted to get a sense of what, uh, what you've got, if you've got anything in the pike that you're working on, you have a project you're working on now or what's, what, what you're going to be do what we can look forward to from you in the future. Uh, I've been writing a lot recently and a lot of it's not film related uh i did write a screenplay which i would like to rewrite and i'm writing a series of stories and uh well some of them are fall into the memoir category some of them are personal but that's what i'm doing right now primarily you know i was teaching at ucla for a while and then i began uh i sailed around the world twice and uh Recently, uh, then I went back to school. Did I tell you that story, what happened? Oh. Yeah, I, I got busted at UCLA for teaching without a high school diploma. And I had to go back to school. And I got my bachelor's. And then uh, I started pre-med at UCLA. And I'm going to Oxford this summer to uh, study uh, a course in physics. And wow. so I'm... This is all just stuff I'm doing for the fun of it. Pretty good for an old guy. You bet. You've been listening to Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts with host and filmmaker Kevin Lane. Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts was created by Kevin Lane, produced by Jason Hill, and co-produced by Felipe Ojeda. The Spill Your Guts theme and incidental music was created by composer Mike Hatton. 
Original artwork and design elements generously produced by Matthew Terrian. Spill Your Guts is only made possible by the support of listeners like you. And the most important thing you can do to ensure that these amazing interviews keep coming is to simply get the word out. You can find us on Facebook by searching Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts, Instagram at, all one word, Spill Your Guts underscore podcast, and Twitter at Spill Your Guts underscore one, as in the number one. Post, comment, share, like. But don't forget that good old-fashioned word of mouth still goes a long way. The best way you can support what we do is to just tell people about us. Friends, family, co-workers, whomever. Anyone with a pair of ears and a taste for guts. This has been Kevin Lane's Spill Your Guts. Thanks for listening.